Well, if you have that Bible with you that you took out earlier, turn again to Matthew 27. As we, talks about, as we talk about the crux of the matter. In contemporary English, that word crux means a decisive moment, uh, an important part, a fork in the road, maybe even a point of difficulty. So we speak of something being the crux of the matter. You may also know that crux is a Latin word, and it means in Latin, cross. The etymology or development of that word crux and the history behind it there, it's, it's helpful as we think about the cross of Christ. Because the cross of Christ in the Bible and in history was indeed a decisive moment. The cross of Christ and the lives of many in our own experience, it's been a fork in the road for us, hasn't it? The cross of Christ for billions of people throughout history, it's been a point of difficulty. Today, the cross is a quaint symbol. We put crosses around our necks, on our Bibles, slap them on T-shirts or bumpers on our cars. If it's jewelry, they're usually made of pretty gold or silver. It's buffed out to smooth edges and shiny finishes. But in the first century, the cross was the most hideous symbol. It was everywhere. The Romans used crucifixion as a punishment to one person and as a warning to the rest simultaneously. Crucifixions took place just outside cities, usually off the main road. So those coming and going would see. Because it usually took days for someone to die from crucifixion, many would pass by and see that gruesome picture. In the Roman world, the cross was commonly seen, but it was never to be spoken of in decent company. The poet Cicero wrote, Let the very name of the cross be far away, not only from the body of a Roman, but from his thoughts, his eyes, his lips, and his ears. The cross was hideous, reserved for slaves or the worst of criminals. It was calculated and perfected to be the slowest and most painful form of execution. Just the word cross or crux was an obscenity. Among the crassest of society, the form of a cross, like we would do for a timeout sign, this hand gesture, that hand gesture in first century Roman times was the most offensive hand gesture you could do. Imagine the worst one we can do today, that one you sometimes see as you cut someone off on I-25. Well, like that, in first century times, this meant get crucified, cross you. It was not to be done in polite company at all. The Jews in first century times would have not only had all of this cultural association as their own, but they also would have known of passages like this, Deuteronomy 21, 23. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That's talking about crucifixion. 
It's not just talking about monkeys or kids who play in trees. It's talking about a specific kind of hanging on a tree. And Deuteronomy 21 says anyone who has that is cursed. So it's somewhat understandable when Jesus begins to tell his disciples that he's going to be crucified, they're incredulous. They clean out their ears. They shake their heads. Peter even says, no way, not going to happen. Even after the crucifixion happens, it doesn't quite compute for them. And Jesus told them many times he was going to be crucified and on the third day he'd be raised to life. But it's like it was so obtuse to their hearing it never actually registered. It's like the words fell short of the ear canal. One piece of ancient graffiti. Yes, they did graffiti back in Jesus' time. This comes from about 100 A.D. This piece of ancient graffiti that was found by archaeologists captures what the rest of the world thought of a crucified king. It depicts a man on a cross with the head of a donkey. And then beneath the cross is a man gazing upward at him. And below that the caption is, Aleximonius worships his God. In other words, some God. You're going to worship a crucified one? You might as well worship a donkey. It's a joke. So imagine that you're a marketing business person, right? You're an ad guy. And you've been hired by a dozen ragtag guys who want to start a religion and want it to spread worldwide. You know how important branding is Get a logo, get, get a message. I mean, you got those. If it's good, you're in. And these ragtag religious startups say, hey, we were thinking of the cross. That's, that's going to be our thing. That's our symbol. That's our message, the cross. What do you think? Well, don't miss the obvious point first. Uh, no one would make that up. These dozen or so guys, hundreds or so of disciples at the time of Jesus' crucifixion, you wouldn't make that up and make that your logo, make that your message and try to take over the world with it. It's foolish. People get tripped up on the cross. That's exactly right. Well, it's, it's half right, actually. Listen to 1 Corinthians 1, written by the Apostle Paul after Jesus' life and death and resurrection. He said, the word of the cross or the message of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, to Christ's followers, it's the power of God. He goes on to say, Jews demand signs. Generally speaking, he's saying, in his time, Greeks seek wisdom. But we, on the other hand, preach Christ crucified. That's our message. That's a stumbling block to Jews. It's folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, whether they're Jew or Greek or Gentile, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. 
One cross, yet two very different reactions to it. It's as if there are two dimensions going on. One is face value, what appears to be real. The other is below the surface or behind the scenes. One is, in a sense, real, but another one is a fuller reality. It's almost like the matrix. So these two dimensions, two dimensions to the cross, can be seen powerfully and even ironically in Matthew's telling of the crucifixion of Jesus, which we read earlier. Matthew 27. In Matthew 27, there are four different themes that come to a crux. At least four. The first is the crux of his kingship. His kingship. All through this chapter, there is this crux, this intersection with Jesus and the theme of kingship. Remember verse 37? It said, they put over his head the charge against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. This actually isn't mockery. There's plenty of that elsewhere in this chapter, but not here. Just like Matthew tells us, it's a charge. It's a verdict. The Jewish leaders at first brought Jesus to the Roman officials, saying that Jesus committed blasphemy. But that's not a a Roman jurisdiction to meddle in religious debates about what does and what doesn't constitute blasphemy. The Romans wouldn't have executed for the charge of blasphemy. And so the Jewish leaders go back to the drawing board, and so they say, well, he said he was king of the Jews. And further, they argue that anyone who makes himself king is opposing Caesar. And they say, we have no king but Caesar. So now they're playing the treason card. So Pilate asks Jesus, before what we read earlier in the service, in chapter 26, Peter, I'm sorry, earlier in chapter 27, Pilate asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus basically, reluctantly, says, well, you said it. But even still, Pilate is convinced that whatever kind of king Jesus is, he's a pretty harmless one. So Pilate insists that he's innocent, tries multiple times, multiple ways to get Jesus out of the out of the danger of this situation. He says he's not deserving death. But in the end, he concedes to the crowd, the relentless, persistent crowd that's unruly, shouting, crucify him. And so Pilate writes on this placard the charge, king of the Jews. It's a judicial loophole to give the people what they want. And in God's providence, it's absolutely true. Jesus is the king of the Jews, the promised one, the long-awaited one. Not just king of the Jews, king of the world. Before the crucifixion, the Roman soldiers put on a mock coronation of this so-called king. With this charge in mind, they look at Jesus, the vagabond preacher, 
no possessions, no followers as far as they can tell. No one's around right now. They've all deserted Jesus. He's a king? And they think, oh, this is priceless. So like barracks humor, they mock him. Look at it again. Verse 28, they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, twisted together a crown of thorns, probably two inches long, these thorns. They put it on his head, shoved it down, no doubt. They put a reed in his hand like it's a scepter. And they knelt before him, one after the other. They mocked him. They giggled and said, Hail, King of the Jews. They spit on him. Then they took the scepter, the reed, out of his hand and beat him with it. And then they took his clothes off again, took the robe away, put his own clothes back on and led him away. It's so ridiculous that Jesus would be a king and get beat up like this and be in this position in any way, shape, or form. It's so ridiculous that it wasn't just a few soldiers who were doing this. Peter, uh, sorry, Matthew tells us that the whole battalion was doing that. That's 600. 600 soldiers. What irony. What they do actually fits. He is the king. In a sense, they are coronating him. They bow before him, the one before whom they will one day bow in the sense that Philippians 2 talks about. That one day, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Some will do so worshipfully, some will do so under constraint, but truthfully. What irony. And what's more is that this cross is actually the means by which Jesus will be exalted. The cross isn't divergent from his kingly pursuits. It's not away from his kingly identity. It's right in it. In Philippians 2, the same passage I just read, we read that he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. You see the therefore? He died in a cross. Therefore, God will exalt him. Or in Revelation 5, 9, we read, The angel singing in heaven, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. Not despite the fact, for. Well, the soldiers think they're being ironic, but there's a deeper layer of irony. They act better than they know, they speak better than they know, and what Pilate wrote is truer than he knew. They're at the crux with a king. They don't see it. But there's also, secondly, the crux of his power in Matthew 27. The crux of his power. The crowd and the passers-by in verse 39 and following, what does it say there? 
It says they deride him, wagging their heads, saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself if you're the Son of God. Come down from the cross. Well, you might know Jesus actually did say this. In John chapter 2, he said, Destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. The temple behind him took 46 years to build. Remember, this is the age before hydraulics, cranes, jackhammers, bulldozers. It would be absurd for someone today with all of our technology to say, I can build the world's largest skyscraper in three days. I mean, Donald Trump might say that, but the media would just laugh at him. But what Jesus said in the first century about rebuilding the temple, that massive temple made of enormous stones, and they couldn't even cut stones or use tools there at the site, everything built off-site, then brought in. For Jesus to say he's going to rebuild that temple in three days is far more absurd than anyone today saying they can build the world's, sky, world's tallest skyscraper in three days. I mean, they're thinking to themselves, these who are mocking Jesus about this idea that he would build the temple in three days. He didn't even put up a fight. Not at his arrest. Not when he was mocked and beaten. I mean, if he can rebuild the temple in three days, even 600 Roman soldiers should be nothing for him, right? But he hardly spoke to his accusers. He hardly spoke to the accusations. He hardly spoke to Pilate at his trial. He couldn't even defend himself with words. So Matthew records that when Pilate asked him, he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge. And the governor was greatly amazed. That's weird that a guy saying no defense. But Hundreds of years before, through the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 53 reads, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. It isn't just that he had nothing to say. It isn't just that he, well, felt it so heavy that he... He couldn't come up with the right words. It's showing that he isn't defending himself, and it looks like weakness. No doubt the crowd's thinking, if you're going to rebuild this temple, you're surely going to have to get yourself down from that cross. You're surely going to have to get yourself out of this pickle if you plan on rebuilding the temple after it's destroyed. We'll see if that even happens. You're not held there by those nails, however big they are. Are you? But it's actually on the cross where the temple is being destroyed. They don't see it. They don't know it. We do. And it's not guesswork. Remember that I said Jesus said that he would rebuild the destroyed temple in three days in John chapter 2? Well, after the crowd protests, John, the writer, comments. He says... 
But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. The people's words are being turned back on them. They don't know it. The temple is being destroyed before their very eyes, and it will be rebuilt on the third day. That's proof that he's the Son of God. And that's exactly why he cannot come down from the cross. It's of his own volition. All this is of his own volition. He said when they were arresting him, do you think that I can't appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled? There's a plan. John 10, he said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own volition. What meekness. But not meekness just to show off meekness. Not meekness just as a moral lesson, like turn the other cheek. We should always do that. But meekness with this great purpose. The structural temple of Jesus' time was the house of sacrifice. It was a meeting place between God and in man. So when Jesus says, I'm the temple, destroy that temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. What Jesus is saying is that on the cross, he is ushering in a new spiritual temple. He himself will be the sacrifice, the final and complete one. He will be the sacrifice through which we meet with God. In that sense, he's a temple. And it's precisely in his death and his resurrection that he brings us to God. You want a better and new temple? Do you want to meet God better than ever before? Then I stay on the cross. But they didn't get it. They wagged their heads. He's actually ushering in a new age. Actually transforming religion. He's actually transforming reality before their very eyes. He's channeling a path between sinful man and God, heaven and earth. It looks like weakness, and it's pure power. It looks like he's a wimp doing nothing, and he's doing everything. It'll never be the same. A third crux, though, in Matthew's passage is the crux of salvation. The crux of salvation. The religious leaders now join in. In verse 41, look in your Bibles with me there, where it says the chief priests with the scribes and elders, the whole lot of religious leaders mocked him, saying, he saved others, apparently he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. Now when they say he saved others, they have in mind probably his healings, right, that came before. Maybe especially the raising of Lazarus. That got to be pretty well-known news around these uh, parts in this time. But in reality, Jesus has a far greater saving in mind than the kind of saving that was done in healings. He plans on saving 
eternally. Body and soul. Not just from death, but saved from the second death or hell. Saved from God's judgment. Saved from sin. How? He has to die. The payment for sin is death. Ever since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, we've all bought into it. We've all followed a humanity of rebellion against God, both in just our nature and in our actions. The payment for sin is death. But Jesus is dying on that cross as a substitute. He's dying in our place. Ephesians 1 tells us we have redemption through his blood. Something so good put next to something so horrific, violent, bloody. Ephesians 2 says we've been brought near to God by the blood of Jesus. Something so good, something so terrifying. Colossians 1 says we're reconciled to God through Jesus' body, body on the tree. In 1 Peter 3, Jesus died for our sins. The just one died for the unjust ones that he might bring us to God. So once again, Jesus' revilers are dead wrong, and yet, from another angle, they spoke far better than they knew. He is the King of Israel, and he cannot come down from the cross. He saved others. He cannot save himself. It's true. If he will save others, he cannot save himself. If he had saved himself from the cross, he could not save others. Not saving himself was the means by which he saved others. Our only hope is that he stays. And they say, if you come down, we'll believe in you. What good is belief in him if he's simply a crucifixion Houdini? Right? It's just a trick or a miracle. They even acknowledge you've done many things, right? You've saved others. He acknowledged his powerful works in various places in the Gospels. They didn't believe in him then. They wouldn't believe in him if he did come down. And if he did come down and they did believe in him, he wouldn't be a savior. He'd be at best a miracle worker, at worst a Houdini. The irony that we see in Matthew 27 is very much like an accidental prophecy that that happens in John chapter 11. Listen to this. In John 11, the religious, religious leaders are getting nervous about Jesus and they say, If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place, our our land, and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, he said to them, It's better for you, for all of us, that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. In doing so, he unintentionally prophesied 
that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. He didn't know how well he spoke when he said, one man to die for the people. Are you getting the point that God is doing something behind the scenes? A thousand years before Jesus, God said through King David in Psalm 2, the kings of the earth gather together and they conspire against God's anointed. But the God who sits in the heavens laughs. He holds them in derision. He will set his king in Zion. The last kind of crux we see is a crux of relationship. There's the crux of relationship here. Let me show you what I mean. The religious leaders also mock with this, verse 43. He trusts in God, let God deliver him now. If he desires him, that literally is if God delights in him. He said, I'm the son of God. Now when they say this, they are actually quoting Psalm 22, verse 8. Psalm 22 as a whole is a psalm of, of trouble and trust, written by King David. So the religious leaders are saying, hey, this fits. You're in trouble. Do you trust God? Well, if that's true, he will deliver you. I mean, that's in the Bible. We just quoted a Bible verse to you. Let's watch and see if you trust God. You say that you're the son of God? Well, Psalm 22 says that God will deliver you if he delights in you. Let's see if he delights in you. Doesn't look like it right now. In essence, they're questioning the relationship between Jesus and God. Between the son and his father. But they get it all wrong. God does delight in his son. Jesus does trust his father, not in spite of what's happening at the cross, but supremely in the cross. Jesus even trusts his father to not deliver him. That's how much he trusts him. We saw that at our Lord's Supper service just a couple of nights ago, where Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. Three times he prayed, Father, if it be possible, let this cup, the cup of your wrath, the cup that I'll face at the cross, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And the second time he prayed, he went away and prayed, My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And he did it again a third time. And there was silence. There's no response recorded of the Father to Jesus. The implication is clear. There's no other way. Is there any other way than this cup? Silence. And upon the cross, before he breathes his last, Jesus cried out. You see in verse 46, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Also in Psalm 22, by the way. Remember the religious leaders quoted from Psalm 22? A little bit later on, Jesus quotes from the same psalm. Now, why does he say this? Why does he quote this part? What does it mean for God, Jesus, the Son, to say to God the Father, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, in some ways, we don't know exactly what it meant. Martin Luther, the reformer, he said, If Jesus didn't know, we sure don't know. I mean, Jesus put it in the form of a question, right? But it's a rhetorical question. It really is a statement. There's much we don't know about what it means, but there are some things we do know. We know that Jesus, upon the cross, was bearing the sins of his people and hence taking divine judgment. And as he does so, there is some kind of relational separation from his father. It's not just that Jesus feels forsaken, but that he is temporarily forsaken. He will not be delivered yet. Remember, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Jesus is bearing our curse. That curse is the Father's wrath. So it looks like the relationship is all broken. It looks like from a distance that Jesus doesn't trust God. It may look like he's not the son of God. It might look like there's no hope for deliverance here. It sure looks like from the outside that God doesn't delight in him. In fact, it looks like God has rejected him. But this has been the plan from the beginning. This was the Trinitarian plan from the beginning. This is actually what it means to be the Son of God. This is actually what it means for Jesus to trust his Father completely. It is in this moment that Jesus is trusting him most. It is in this moment that he is obeying him to the fullest. You see, though the Father withdraws from the Son in some sense, the sacrifice and offering of Jesus' life for sins is a sweet aroma. Ephesians 5 says, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Hebrews 10, we've been sanctified or made holy through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. He was not delivered, but was forsaken for us. Saving others, he could not save himself. Bearing sin under divine judgment meant that the Father turned his face away. Yet bearing sin under divine judgment was full and ultimate obedience. Though being treated like the worst of all sinners in the world, Jesus was actually dying in perfect righteousness. So Romans 5 says, Through one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. It's in that sense it was pleasing to the Lord to bruise him in those thick, heavy, dark words of Isaiah 53. 
It was the Lord's pleasure to put his soul to grief, it said. But Isaiah 53 also predicted of the one who will suffer like this, he shall see the travail of his soul, the success, and he'll be satisfied. Hebrews tells us that he endured the cross with joy set before him, knowing what was on the other side of the cross. And in point of fact, he was delivered. We call that the resurrection. He was delivered. If you're the son of God, let God deliver you. Hold on, just wait. Sunday's coming. The Father does delight in him. The sacrifice worked. How do we know? God raised him on the third day. Are you getting the point? That God is doing something behind the scenes. That Jesus is not just a historical figure or a good teacher or some guy who got some bad luck. God said through the prophets, I'm doing a work in your midst, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. Are you coming to a crux with Jesus? Coming maybe for the first time to see him as a different kind of king? Offering a different kind of salvation through a different kind of power because he has a different kind of relationship with his father, one that, one that you wouldn't have made up nor would the disciples. Will you trust in this? Will you trust in this sacrifice for you? Maybe you've had Jesus all wrong. Maybe you had the Bible all wrong. Maybe you thought it was a mile wide and an inch deep, and now you see it's a mile wide still, but it's a million miles deep. There's so much going on below the surface. Believe in him. Call out to him. Receive his mercy, receive the payment for your sins that Jesus paid on the cross. Confess to him that you're a sinner. Ask him for forgiveness. Call out to him in prayer. And the Bible says you'll be saved. He didn't save himself. He was saving others. Christian, are you connecting dots between this and your everyday life? We have this same God, and he hasn't fallen asleep. We doubt his reign at times, don't we? We doubt his power at times. We doubt his goodness or his kindness or his grace. We've come to believe this gospel, this Jesus, this cross, and we often sound just like these jokers in here. If you're good... You'll do this for me. If you're good, you won't let this happen. You'll make this stop. He's doing a million things you can't see. Look to the cross. Trust him. He knows better than you. And praise him for it. Praise him for a salvation so great. I began this section by this sermon by reading from 1 Corinthians 1 about the foolishness and the power of Christ crucified. Listen to what Paul says as he goes on. He said, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Then he says, think about how you were called to him. 
Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame what is wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that aren't to bring to nothing the things, the things that are. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. And that's why it's written, let the one who boasts or brags or has confidence and joy, let him who boasts like that boast only in the Lord. Maybe so.